We are nearing the end, about three lessons left in the book of Romans, and we're at a really pivotal part. Uh, but first, let me say a prayer for us, and then we'll kind of dive right in. This is, this is probably my, well, I don't know, maybe my second favorite chapter of Romans. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. We're grateful that you have preserved us and brought us here. We're thankful for the country in which we live, and we pray that you would inform the hearts and the minds of our leaders that you would bend this nation to your will because that is a good thing. Pray that you would turn the hearts of our leaders to your purposes in this world. Father, we pray also that you would change our hearts, that we would follow you more nearly. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as always, there's the number for questions during our class, and uh, this is a pivotal chapter, so it would be good if you do have some questions to text them in to that number uh, during time. I have a lot of thoughts about this chapter, but I'd rather actually take it where you would like to go. So we have been talking about the uh, gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in a different way than we traditionally think about the gospel. But first, uh, the book of Romans is not really a book. We talked about that. It's a letter. Paul was in the city of Corinth, still there today, still in Greece, and he was basically preaching and starting churches in that whole area, and he heard that there were believers in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. And so, without ever having been to Rome yet, he wrote a letter. It happens to be a long letter. It's 16, broken into 16 chapters. Paul didn't write it in chapters, he just wrote it all together. But uh, later in time, actually about a thousand years later, people broke them into chapters so that you could find verses easier. That's really the only reason that your Bible is broken into chapters and verses is so you can find certain passages more easily. So Paul wrote this long letter to Rome and he wrote this letter to explain to them what the good news about Jesus Christ really is. And it is the most profound explanation of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. And I wanna recap that just a little bit because this is a different way of thinking about the gospel, I think. Uh, for example, let's just use a couple of passages. Paul starts out by saying, this good news, and I'm gonna interchange gospel and good news. Just, the word, it's exactly the same word. Because the good news is the power of God for salvation of everyone who trusts God. Remember the word believe, faith, trust, same word. Trust, in my view, is a little better English translation because it gives you the idea of not just mental assent. It gives you the idea of trust, like I'm relying on this. And so this good news is the power of God for salvation for everyone who puts their trust in him. In chapters 9 through 11, we talked about why first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. But basically, the first 11 chapters are going to be theological. In other words, they're going to give you what is the gospel, what does it mean to us. So for example, Paul starts this way in chapter 1, verse 18 the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness. Unrighteousness means those who are rebelling against God. That's you, that's me, that's everybody in the world. And he goes through the next several chapters talking about why everyone, 
falls short of God's standard. Everyone has turned their back on God. No matter what you know, no matter how moral a person you are, we fail even by our own standards, let alone by God's. And so he begins by talking about the nature of the problem. We have a terminal condition called sin. That's essentially what sin is. But now, in chapter 3, he concludes this and he says, given that this is our circumstance, but now a righteousness from God. In other, a, in other words, a way to be right with God, a way to be judicially right, meaning I declare you not guilty, but also a way to be relationally right, as in, hey, we are good with each other. We're connected. I'm not angry at you. You're not angry with me. You're not in rebellion. We're together. So judicially and relationally, good. That righteousness comes from God, not from us. And now that has been revealed to us. And it's apart from law, meaning behavior. You can't behave yourself into a good relationship with God. In fact, we, we were doomed. And he says, but now God has acted on our behalf to make us righteous. How? It comes through trust in Jesus Christ for all who believe, all who have trust. In other words, it's merely by trusting in Jesus Christ. So what is this really saying? And here's the interesting thing. The good news of Jesus Christ is not a philosophy. It's not an ideology. It's not a set of rules. It's not just go love people. It, that is not the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news about Jesus Christ is an historical event. It is this reality. God is making certain truth claims. In other words, he's saying, you may believe this, you may not believe this to all who believe, but I'm going to tell you how this universe I created really works. There is this thing called sin, and you are slaves to sin, and it only goes one place, death. Death forever. And he says, but I can reconcile you to myself and that can be done through trusting in something I'm going to do. And so God enters history. We call it the incarnation. God becomes man, takes on human flesh. Jesus Christ, God with us. You see how all the Bible's pulling together here? Everything that you know about the New Testament and Old Testament is all going to come together in this event. So God enters history personally. He takes all the sin that we have and becomes the perfect sacrifice. He takes our place and he reconciles us with God by bearing our sin on a cross to death, death in the grave where we should have been and yet he is raised from the dead. And so in that event, death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, God reconciles us to him and deals with our sin. And that is that righteousness, that reconciliation comes from God through all who trust in what Jesus Christ did. The good news of Jesus Christ is that historical event. Chapter five says, therefore, since we have been justified, justified, righteous, same word. Therefore, since we have been reconciled to God by faith, by our trust, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So first four chapters tells you what is the good news? We had a problem, God solved it. So all who trust in him now have peace with God. Romans chapter six, that says, well, does that mean we keep on sinning? He goes, no, but not for the reason you think. It's not a behavioral issue, but you have been changed. You have died. In other words, those of us who have been baptized with Christ have been buried with him into death. Our old self is dead. Jesus isn't gonna make us better people. He's gonna make us brand new people. That is the essence of the good news, the gospel. So we come to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a hinge, and the whole book kind of turns now from the theological ideas that, you, that we need to know, to understand, and it says, therefore, in light of that truth, how then shall we live? What difference then does that make? And so Romans chapter 12, you get into kind of one of the more profound pieces of the Bible in terms of how we should live. One of the things I put on social media was how to live the Christian life without actually trying. The other is I wanna talk about the idea of what does it take to be saved? If it's not just belief and it's certainly not behavior, what then is the gospel telling us about how we should live? Because sometimes as Christians, we live as though I believe in Jesus, I'm good. It's like having a Sam's card or, you know, uh, it's, you just got a card in my wallet. I'm going to show it at heaven and go, I'm a member, you know, right? See my Costco card right here? I'm in. Good. But then I'm going to go do what I want to do. Bible's not okay with that. On the other hand, sometimes as Christians, we think, I better live a good life. I better be a good person. I didn't act very good this week. God's probably not very happy with me. Bible's not okay with that either. So then what does it take to get to heaven? That's what chapter 12 through 16 is gonna talk about, the practical aspect of the implications of this historical event. The good news of Jesus Christ is an actual event. That is different than any other religion that you can think about in the sense that they tend to be ideas on how to live the good life or how to avoid suffering or how to appease an angry God. Christianity is none of those. It's based on a historical event and the actions of God himself to reconcile us. Here's a, a good quote from N.T. Wright. Romans chapter 12 through 16, that's what we're gonna do in the next few lessons, is the ultimate answer to those who suggest that Paul's ethics are not really related to his theology. I know that you probably don't read a lot of theology, but this is a very popular thing to say that Paul's theology about the gospel is good, but the ethics are culturally conditioned. In other words, everything he says about sexual morality, about uh, male-female relationships, about marriage, about anything that contrasts with our culture, really wanna separate the theology part from the behavior part. And N.T. Wright really gets this correct when he says this, is that, the way those two terms have sometimes been used implies that what you believe and your behavior are by their nature separate human activities. In other words, we may say, I believe this, but I behave that. That's very common in our culture. It's even common in Christian culture. 
But what Paul thinks and what the New Testament, the whole New Testament, does not understand belief and behavior is two different things. They are inextricably woven together. If, when we bring this dualism to the New Testament and say belief, behavior, two different things, we are imposing our 21st century way of thinking on God's revelation. That's not what God thinks. God thinks what you believe and what you behave are inextricably woven together. They are the breath and blood of Christian living, the, literally the twin signs of life. It's really interesting when you think about where do people get their ideas of what is right and what is wrong? And most people grab them from different places and then they begin to try, in most cases, to get their behavior to match their ideals. The difference about Christianity is twofold. Number one, where we get our ideas of what is right and wrong. And secondly, that we don't think that we are engaged in a process of getting our behavior to match up with our ideals of right and wrong. That's not the Christian life. That's everybody else you know in the world. Most people get their ideas of right and wrong. For example, Jews at this time got their ideas of right and wrong from the law of Moses. Now, there is a very intimate relationship between the Old and New Testament, between the law of Moses and the gospel, but the, the Old Testament, the law, Paul says, was a school teacher to lead people to Christ. And so you won't see Paul quoting a command from the Old Testament and therefore saying, this is how we're going to live. Do we follow a lot of the rules in the Old Testament? Of course we do, but only incidentally so. In other words, we're no longer trying to measure up by keeping a bunch of rules. A lot of people get their ideas of right and wrong from very culturally conditioned things. You pick up any paper today, pick up any news feed, and read about people talking about things that are right and wrong, and immigration is right, or no, illegal immigration is wrong. Uh, abortion is a right. No, abortion is wrong. I mean, Pick any topic that you want. How do people come up with their ideas of what is right and wrong? Well, we live in a very morally relativistic society. In other words, your ideas of right and wrong in our culture come from your little tribal group. For example, if you go to Ethiopia, you will find things there that are right and wrong that people in New York City would say, that's not right, those people are wrong. Go to Ethiopia and they'd say, no, you're wrong. In other words, many ideas of right and wrong are very culturally conditioned. For Christians, the idea of right and wrong come from the very nature of who God is. Where Christianity differs is not just taking a tribal idea of right and wrong, but then also not necessarily just trying to live up to it because people don't live up to it. If we're trying to live up to all the rules God has, we will fail just as badly as your secular neighbor is failing to live up to his or her own rules. Nobody lives up to even their own idea of right and wrong. So let's talk about chapter 12 because this is what it's gonna get into. Chapter 12, verses one and two. Therefore, what Paul is saying is, given all 11 chapters of what the gospel really is, and the nature of our relationship to God, since that is true and since you now understand it, therefore I urge you, when Paul says I urge you, that word carries the idea of some authority, uh, expectedness. It's sort of 
in that Greek word in modern Greek just means please. But 2,000 years ago, it had a stronger sense. It meant I'm expecting you and I am urging you to, in view of God's mercy, in other words, did we achieve salvation because of anything we did? No, in fact, we were hopelessly lost. It's this event in history that God did. In view of God's mercy to us, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I use the New International Version here because it's just what I always use uh, for teaching because so many people have it. About 60, 70% of people use that translation. Terrible translation here. So I want to, well, just in this passage, I really do not like this. The spiritual act of worship, I wanna talk about that for just a minute, is that word is where we get our word logic. It's your logical act of worship. And so I want you to think about this, it's, it's engaging your mind. What Paul is saying are a couple of interesting things. How you're going to act as a Christian involves your thinking, your feeling, and your doing. It involves your thinking, it's a rational process. This is your logical, rational, reasonable response to God. In view of his mercies, your any reasonable, rational person is going to respond by saying, wow, I was dead and now I'm alive. I was blind, but now I see. My response to you is, the only reasonable response is to offer yourself as a living, holy, pleasing to God sacrifice. In other words, basically, thank you, Lord, now that we are reconciled, how then shall I behave? How now shall I live? And so it's your reasonable act of worship. It involves your brain. It's not just a feeling, and it's not just a behavior. It's very holistic. This is the other thing that's very unique to the idea of the gospel, is it engages everything about you. You don't have to check your brain at the door. In fact, you can't check your brain at the door because Paul is going to demand, Jesus is going to demand, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, our mind, our emotions, and our actions. All of those are gonna be lined up, and where do we start? Well, you have two choices. <clears throat> we can be conformed to the pattern of this age, the way this age thinks, the way this world feels, and the way this world acts. But he says, no, we are going to be transformed by getting a brand new mind. And from that will flow how we feel and what we do. You see, the essence of the gospel is really, I'm going to sound like I'm anti-emotion here, and I'm really not. We should feel deeply what God has done for us. The only reasonable response to God's mercy is an outpouring of praise and gratitude. That's called worship. That's called recognizing who God is, who I am, and who I am now because of what he has done. 
That's worship. That's an inherently mental, emotional, physical response to God. But the gospel isn't good news because it makes you feel good. We talked about this in the first eight chapters. Romans chapter 1 through 8 is true whether or not you feel like it on any given day. That is essential. That's why Christianity is so rational, logical, is because it's a truth claim. The gospel is making a statement about that's true about you if you trust in Jesus Christ, whether or not on any given day you feel like you're really close to Christ. The gospel is good news because it's true. It doesn't rely on my feelings. It doesn't rely on my behavior being perfect. It's good news because it's true. And that's how Romans 12 starts. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You get a brand new mind. You get a brand new outlook. Your old self who conformed to the pattern of this world, who thought like this world and felt like this world, is dead. That's what Romans chapter 6 says. Pardon me. Our old selves have died. You have a new mind. It is the mind of Christ. It is powered by the Holy Spirit. This is the key to Christian ethics. Christian ethics about what is right and wrong, what is good behavior, what is bad behavior, do not flow from any particular set of rules or an ideology, Christian ethics flow from what God has done. And I now have a renewed mind, and you see the world differently. I can't stress this enough, and I'll move on here in a second, but I really want you to think about this. Everything about the Christian life comes from the fact that you now know the truth, and you will see everything differently. Think about Jesus and the way he dealt with people. Jesus wasn't just a better person than you are. This is an awkward thing to say, and my language is going to betray me. But I don't want you to look at Jesus and go, oh, he's just the perfect human being. Well, that's true, but not for the reason you think it's true. He loved everybody. I could do that too if I tried hard. Well, no, I really can't. Those people at the DMV, bless their little hearts, but I just can't, I'm frustrated with them. But my point is, Jesus isn't just a better version of you. Jesus treated people the way he treated them because he saw the whole world differently. Remember how Jesus talks about people being lost and found? You know, the, basically the parable about the prodigal son. It's really the story of the lost son. And he sees people as lost and found rather than seeing them as good and evil. Will they be judged? Of course. The New Testament talks about Jesus talked as much about judgment as he talked about anything. But the point is he saw you and me differently. On this side of the cross, he saw us as dead in our sins, covered in sin. And yet he sees us as people who can be found who can be redeemed, reclaimed, that's now how we see the world. That's why in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, I don't want you to think you're just sorting out the good people and the bad people in the world. Heavens no, our battle is against the powers of evil that are animating that. 
It is the power of sin. It is Satan who wishes to keep people enslaved. We see the world differently. That is gonna power everything about the Christian life. The Christian ethic is very different than a secular ethic. It's not just this is good, this is bad. It's a completely different way of seeing the world. So a couple of passages here or quotes that I'd like to talk to you about that is to highlight a couple of things. Tom Schreiner says this, Paul is not merely saying that the sacrifices are spiritual. Because sometimes we read that and we say, because of what God has done, <clears throat> offer yourself as a spiritual sacrifice. It's not what he's saying. His point is that it is eminently reasonable, given the mercies of God, for believers to dedicate themselves wholly, completely to God. Here's the essence of the Christian life. This is why, by the way, Paul, if you read the letters of Paul, he's gonna open almost every letter he writes with this. And Romans starts this way. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Always starts that way. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And you think, wow, what a curious thing to say. No, it's not curious, it's true. The essence of what Romans chapter 12 is saying, given that the gospel is true, your and my reasonable response to that is to completely and wholly offer ourselves to God. We are nothing apart from God. And so the idea is to become a complete sacrifice to God. That's gonna power all the Christian life. Let me keep going, because I wanna talk about this idea of sacrifice. Tim Keller says this, <clears throat> to be a living sacrifice, remember there, the sacrifice is your reasonable act of worship is to be a holy, pleasing to God, living sacrifice. There are three adjectives for that. The living sacrifice is to be fully at God's disposal. It means to be willing to obey God in anything he says, in any area of life, and passively to be willing to thank God for anything he sends in any area of life. This is exactly what the scripture is saying. It says our reasonable response to God is to become a living sacrifice. This passage in the Greek language of this passage really picks up a lot of language from the Old Testament, very sacrificial language. For, its, for example, it says, you know, uh, this is your reasonable act of worship. That term is used in the Old Testament. The idea of a sacrifice. Think about what a sacrifice was. <clears throat> Here's how sacrifices work. Got a big old altar, bring in an animal who's gonna be a substitute, sort of a down payment on our sin until the perfect sacrifice comes in Jesus. So you kill the animal, you take the animal or parts of it, <clears throat> and you put it on the altar and you burn it up. I mean, you burn it up. It's gone, it's toast, literally. I mean, it's ashes. Afterwards, the priest would come up with a special little shovel and a special little uh, pan and get the ashes and go dump them. In fact, you go to Israel, we'll go to Tel Dan, we'll look at a temple there. You can literally see where they put the bones of the animals uh, that didn't burn up. You can see where they put the ashes, that kind of thing. But you burn up a sacrifice. It's gone. It's totally devoted to God. It's not dual use. I mean, you're going, duh, Terry, this is kind of obvious, right? Yes, that's what a sacrifice is. It's something that's completely given to God. 
It's not like you sacrifice something to God and then you take it home and use it. Like, hey, I'm sacrificing my dog, Rosie, to God. And okay, she's yours now, come on, let's go. And Rosie and I go back home. No, Rosie will have to stay. She's gonna be sacrificed to God. That's why they burned sacrifices. If you've ever wondered, why do you burn a sacrifice? Why don't you just put it on the altar and say, hey, that's yours, we're gonna do a barbecue now, right? And we're gonna barbecue this. No, it has to be given over to God. Here's a good example in modern terms. So we don't do sacrifices in that way, but think about this. At our church and a lot of churches, sometimes people give a gift and they will designate that gift. Most common is a building fund. If you're doing a building fund, people give money and say, I wanna support the building fund. You can't use that money, ethically at least, for anything else. In other words, it's designated to go to the building fund. So if you accept it, that's what you're going to do with it. It's basically the one who owns it, the owner says, this is its use, right? So one of the ways we think of that is we think of designated gift. If you accept the gift, it can only be used in this way. Can't be used for something else. A trust, <clears throat> often there are terms in a trust. And if you take money out of the trust, the owner, the person that put it in there, may put some stipulations on it, right? And say, you can have this money when you get to be a certain age, and you can use it for education, but you can't use it for anything else. We we're, we're really understand that idea of something being set aside to be used for a specific purpose. That's exactly what a sacrifice was in those days, and it's exactly the same idea now. That's why when the passage talks about your reasonable response to God, your reasonable act of worship is to become a living sacrifice, it means you literally go on the altar, but you don't get burned up, you don't get killed, you don't get stabbed, I mean, nothing. You're a living sacrifice, but you are no longer free to be dual use. Does that make sense? Your life now belongs totally to God. That's where the holy comes in. Holy simply means being set apart for a very specific purpose. We talked about Israel, the Jewish people. God set them apart. Why, because they're better? No, because he had a very specific purpose for them. We are living sacrifices means we are completely dedicated to God. It's not like, God, you're my number one priority and I've got nine others, <clears throat> but you're number one. I don't like that language. I know what we mean by it and I'm not trying to quibble, just saying God is not number one priority out of 10. God is priority one through 10, all of them. That's what the scripture is saying is the implication of the gospel. Very different way of thinking about your Christian life. I really want you to let that soak in and think about it. That's what the Bible says the Christian life is about. It's not about a relationship with God and a relationship with the world. John's gonna say friendship with the world is hatred toward God. You cannot serve both God and money, according to Jesus. Do not love the world, says John again, or the things in the world, because all those things pass away, and anyone who loves the world hates God. Why is it setting this up? Because sacrifice means to be completely devoted to God, and trying to be dual use, live in both worlds, is not possible. That's why the gospel in Romans chapter six says, can I keep on sinning now that I've been forgiven? 
Paul goes, that's like asking if the animal we just burned up on the altar can get up and go home. No. He says, you don't understand what this is about. We are completely sacrificed to God. Okay, I think I hit that one too hard. But you get the idea. And I want you to let this soak in because it starts here to go the way you feel and the way we act. I want you to get completely out of the idea of behavioral Christianity. I want us to think about the idea of being living sacrifices, completely and wholly owned by God. That's why Paul starts all his letters. I am a slave of God. I am completely at his disposal. And everything I do is completely in his service. Third, John Stott says this. This is where the behavior comes in. He says, Paul's made it plain in his exposure of human depravity in chapters one through three. Depravity doesn't mean that we're all bad. Nobody can ever do any nice things. Depravity means we can't be good on our own. God had to intervene for us to be reconciled. He said that it reveals itself through our bodies. If you think back to chapter one, two, and three, it says, how do I know that I have a sin problem? Because I keep sinning. And he starts listing them all off, right? Our behavior reflects what's in our mind and what's in our heart. He said, so we basically practice deceit, lips which spread poison, mouths full of cursing and bitterness, feet to shed blood, eyes which look away from God. Conversely, Christian sanctity, holiness, that word also just means holiness, shows itself in the deeds of the body. So we are to offer different parts of our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. Talks about this in six. He says, stop offering the parts of your body as instruments of sin. You now belong to God, all of your body, your tongue, your thoughts, your hands, your deeds, your, all the things you do, all those things belong to God. So go do godly things with them. In other words, he's, our behavior flows from the fact that we now belong to God. It's not, that's why in the New Testament, you're gonna have a hard time finding any list of rules. You're gonna find a lot of exhortation, a lot of, hey, this is consistent with what God wants. That's not consistent with what God wants. This is how God wants you to behave as a Christian citizen. This is how God wants you to behave as a Christian husband. He wants you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. He goes, whoa, where was that in the rules? He goes, this is what it looks like to belong to God as a, a husband. In other words, it's describing what this life looks like. So we're not list, you know, trying to keep a list of behaviors. We're just saying, God, I completely belong to you. What's it look like to be in your family? He says, let me show you. And he basically showed us in the person of Christ and tells us in the revelation in the scriptures. So that's Romans chapter 12, one and two. So I spent a lot of time there because it's essential. The rest of it, if you aren't careful, you're gonna read it as a do this, don't do that. It's not about do this, don't do that. It's all about, I belong to God. Now, God, tell me how do we behave in this family? If you were to adopt someone into your family, and many of you have, you adopt a child into your family, child comes into the family and says, I belong to this family now. My life is radically changed. I'm, the whole trajectory of my life is gonna change now. God talks about adopting us as children into his family. He uses that same analogy our whole trajectory of our life has changed. What's one of the first things you do with that child? Will you tell them that you love them? Tell them that they're chosen? Oh my gosh, that sounds a lot like the first part of Romans, isn't it? We've been chosen by God because God so loved us. You understand what I'm saying? Same idea, I love you, I chose you, you're part of this family, 
and the child says, oh my goodness, this is awesome. Now, so how, what do we do in this family? He goes, come on, I'm gonna show you how we act in this family. You learn how to be a part of the family. That's your Christian walk. Think about it in that way and try to avoid thinking about it as do this, don't do that. Let's just zealously say, God, what's it look like to be in your family? Well, he's gonna start talking about that in some specific ways. So Romans uh, 12, three through eight, let's read the next piece. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you should, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. Your hand, your feet, whatever, they function in cooperation, but they're not the same. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, teach. Encouraging, encourage. Contributing to the needs of others, then give generously. If it's leadership, govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, then do it cheerfully. <clears throat> What's Paul saying here? He's taught us to talk about first, how do we get along with each other? Because if you realize that once you come into the family, you realize out in the world, meaning outside those believers who have been regenerated, who have this new mind, who see the world differently, who are followers of Christ, all different ways of saying, I'm a Christian. I trust in what Jesus Christ has done. Very different. People in our world do not get along very well. I don't know if you've noticed the newspapers, but it seems like a lot of people killing each other, arguing with each other, saying nasty things about each other, etc. They don't get along. First place he goes is, given that that's true and you have a new mind, here's how you're going to look at getting along with each other. We all belong completely to God. That completely does away with pride, arrogance, envy, jealousy, all those things in the Bible saying, we don't do that. Why do we not do that? Well, it makes perfect sense because we all belong completely to God. In other words, think of the parable of the talents. This is all tied together, guys. Think of the parable of the talents that Jesus said. One person gets five talents, three talents, one talent. Have you ever noticed the person with one talent, there's, a, there's an interesting lesson in this about not using your gifts for God, but think about the two, the three and the five talent, both of whom used their gifts that they were given for God, different gifts. Maybe one of them was a singer and the other one you know, could play instruments. I don't know, whatever it was, they used their gifts for God, they invested their talents. What did they get? Exact same reward, exact same reward. So it's not about, well, who's gonna be best in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said, whoever's least. Who's gonna be the highest in the kingdom in heaven? The janitor? I mean, seriously, it it's completely overturns the world's way of looking at things. That's why there should not be envy, jealousy, uh, backbiting, gossip, slander amongst us. Why? Because those are rules we need to live up to? No, because you won't live up to them. If you start to think about belonging to God and saying, I don't need to envy anybody else. I don't care how much money you have. In fact, that could be a really bad thing. I don't care that you have better health than I have, that you're better looking than I have, that your teeth are whiter than mine, that you dress better than I do. It, it doesn't matter. And this is what Paul is gonna base it on, that idea of being holy given over to God. There's no longer any reason 
for us to not get along. We just all use our gifts in the way God's given them to us. Does that make sense to you? I want you to see that this is all going to flow very naturally and logically and sensibly, and it's going to incorporate everything else in the New Testament. So this idea of being different members and working together is a key idea. Uh, arrogance is probably one of the worst things you can see in the body because arrogance and pride, you'll see the scripture talk a lot about pride. Sometimes pride for us can be a good thing, can be a bad thing. I want to use the word arrogance because that's never a good thing in the scripture. Arrogance basically says, I'm better. And it completely, 100% goes against the very essence of the gospel. If you ever want to know, am I doing okay with God? If I have arrogance, the answer is no. Doesn't matter how right I am, doesn't matter how nice I am, doesn't matter how loving I am. If I am arrogant, I have completely missed the point. We have no reason to be arrogant. Sometimes we want to look down on other people because they behave more poorly than we do. They are lost. We are not superior. You get this sense of, think of Jesus looking at the world. If you think about it in that way, we don't really think in terms of I'm better than you. We think in terms of I have found a path and you have not found the path. And I'd like to share that with you because judgment is coming. That's radically different than arrogance. Arrogance within the body, arrogance toward those outside the body. You've heard the old saying, I don't love it, but it really fits this, is there but for the grace of God go I. In other words, you look at someone and you say, God, I'll bet I looked more covered in sin to you than that person did, and yet you saved me. I mean, that's our reasonable response, not, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. Arrogance has no place in the body of Christ. So 12, three through eight talks about how we're gonna to work together. Then let's talk about the next part. Nine through 18, he just keeps rolling this out. Love must be sincere. By the way, that word sincere is literally not hypocritical. I mean, it's, it's our word for hypocrisy where we get it. It says love must not be hypocritical. Uh, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This is what it looks like to be in the family. So you can't write these down on a list on your refrigerator and check them off each day. It's like, if you wanna know what it looks like to be in our family, okay, this is what it looks like to be in our family. Uh, don't be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Be patient when things are tough. Be faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This is describing what it looks like to be in God's family. And if you will think about your behavior every day, this is not so much a list of do this, don't do that, as really helpful information. Why should I want to read the Bible? Because I want to know everything there is to know about being part of this family. Where else am I going to find out 
What was Jesus like? What did Paul do? Oh, the Acts of the Apostles. We get to see how they behaved. And oh, look at the affliction that they had and look at the prayer and look at what God did. You want to know all the stories of your, fa- your new adoptive family. You want to know about Crazy Uncle Charlie. You want to know about where did we come from. You want to know what do we do. What are some of the great stories in our family. That's what your New Testament is. That's why we should be devouring the New Testament. We want to know everything about this new family. That's the way I'd like you to read your New Testament. I do want to talk about this idea of love not being hypocritical for a minute. Um, I think Keller has a good statement here. How can we love unlovely people whom we do not like? That is a really good question because loving, one of the popular things that's said now, and there's a lot of truth to it and there's some untruth to it, is that being a Christian just means loving people. I I really think that's easy to misunderstand. There's, There's a key element of truth in that, but it's easy to misunderstand because... Keller hits it on the nose. He says, how can we love unlovely people that we do not like? What we tend to do is we tend to be nice. We sometimes equate loving people with niceness. And I know why we do that, because you cannot love everybody in the way you understand love. You just can be nice to everybody. And so niceness becomes a substitute for love. But let's finish what he's saying. It is hypocritical to act lovingly when you despise someone in your heart. Yet it is unrealistic to insist that your heart is going to be warm and kindly disposed before you can do anything uh, that looks like an action of love. So what's the solution? Well, here's the gospel way. A Christian goes about doing love while repenting, softening the heart through the recollection of Christ's sacrifice. In light of God's mercy, how then shall I treat this person? That's love. Love has almost nothing to do with how you feel about somebody. If it did, you and I are in deep trouble. Imagine God looking down and he sees you and me hopelessly mired in sin, headed for destruction. Romans chapter 5 says this, God showed his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's no emotive language in that whatsoever. It doesn't say God looked at us and would just warmed his heart and said, you little rascals, you. You know, I just, you're just so cute when you're misbehaving. No, Jesus is not hanging on the cross, dying for you and me and saying, oh, I realize it's your sin that put me here, but you're just so cute. Let me just pinch your cheek. No, God didn't feel love toward us in that time. God did love towards us. That's what love looks like is doing it. That's, and Keller hits it right on the head. He says this, it's hypocritical to try to feel good about people that you despise or that you don't feel good about. And so you basically, we need to be repenting as we are loving. In other words, God shaped my mind. Let me see these people the way you see them. And as part of helping me do that, I'm going to go do love to people that I may not like. And that's part of my sanctification. That's part of my becoming like God. Don't wait and don't think you have to have these feelings. If so, you're just going to try to be nice to everybody. And that is hypocritical. That's about me. We are loved because Jesus died for us when we were unattractive in order to make us attractive. If Christians think of this as they are serving unattractive people, 
they will find a repentance growing. Repentance means a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction. We keep lining up ever more closely with Jesus as we do that. I was so, oh Lord, I was so much more unattractive to you than this person is to me. Yet you were tortured and killed. You gave up your life for me. And all I need to do is give up some time and effort for this person. A person who does not understand the gospel cannot do this. That is true. You cannot try hard enough to do that. A person who is just generally moral and nice cannot do this. They have to choose between two inadequate alternatives, phony love, being nice to people, or sporadic love, kindness only to the people that you like. But if you show love as you repent, your heart is softened as you serve. Your service is sincere toward God at that moment. It's, that exactly captures what this is saying, is how then can I be sincere and love people well? We do that by, in light of God's mercy, I am going to do love toward you. And that is part of how God changes my heart to see the world the way he sees it. Being nice to people is hypocritical. I'm nice to you and I don't like you. That's hypocrisy. And sometimes we are thought of as very nice people doing good things in the world. That's not Christian. That's just nice people doing good things in the world. That doesn't make you any different than your neighbor who's a nice person doing good things for people they like. No difference. The difference comes when we love the way God loved. And that is, I see you, I see you for who you are. Here's the big difference, is niceness will never confront people. It isn't really love, it's niceness. Niceness wants to be liked. Niceness wants to be seen as, I'm a good Christian person, I'm being nice to this total scumbag, right? Niceness will never tell people the truth. Sometimes love is telling people things they don't want to hear. Sometimes the greatest love is denying somebody, saying no to something. Actually loving someone is treating them the way God would treat them, treating them the way God treats me. God loves me, and you know what that means? Think of John chapter 15. What does Jesus say? I am the vine, you are the branches, and the branches gets pruned. What does that mean? It means sometimes God looks at our lives and says, no. Let's go back to our analogy of the adopted child. Child comes into your family. Child starts doing things that are not what we do in this family. What do you do? You say no. You discipline them. You help them grow up. Does that make sense? That's what God is doing for us. That's the way we need to treat everybody else. Love like God loves. Niceness is hypocrisy. It's not love. And favoritism is not love. It's just plain favoritism. In other words, I like the people that are like me, and I don't like the people that aren't like me. We do that all the time. Remember Jesus saying, if you are nice to your neighbors, if you love your neighbors and the people that are like you, what good is that? Even the pagans do that. He says, instead, love your enemies. Well, what do you mean? I'm supposed to feel good about them? Of course not. How can you feel good about them? You see how we get drawn into that? We go, I actually just don't like those people. But Jesus told me I was supposed to love them, so I'll be nice to them. Bad choices. Both are bad choices. One is to say, this is God showing me how to change my mind. This is God renewing my mind. I'm going to go do love to you, and I'm not going to pretend that I like you because I don't. And that's a repentance in my heart, right? God will start shaping our hearts. So I want you to think about your Christian life in that way. Sincere love can be tough love. Niceness is never tough. Niceness, 
the truth has to be at the essence, uh, at the heart of love for it to actually be loving. Okay, well, let's sum this up a little bit. Done a lot of talking, and it's kind of conceptual. But I really want you to understand this because it makes all the difference in the world in how you're going to live your life this week. You can either live your life this week, whether you think you are or not, trying to measure up, trying to act good. And that is a dead-end street. You go, you just ride the Christian roller coaster. The essence is when you pray and when you get up every day, remember whose you are. Paul's also going to say this, you were bought at a price. In other words, it cost God his son for me to now be completely at peace with God. You were bought at a price. We are a living sacrifice to God. Let your prayer in the morning be God. Everything that happens today is yours. All the money I make today is yours. All the people I see today are yours. All the jerks that I come across today are opportunities for you to show me what it looks like to love people, whether I like them or not. In other words, get that mindset right. Have that renewed mind and then go act it out. And when you get into it, you're going to realize, well, I don't know exactly how to act in that situation. I better go back to the family manual. How do we do this? That's what your New Testament is all about. So this week, here's what I really want you to do is I really want you to think differently about what it means to be a Christian and then just go act that out. Quit trying to say, I wonder what the standard is here. Go act out what it looks like to be in God's family. You go, gosh, I need more guidance than that. No, you really don't. Just go do that. And we'll check back and you can let me know where you had trouble with that. That is going to be so freeing to you when you finally get out of this idea, when we all finally get out of this idea that we're supposed to behave in a certain way. No, we're supposed to behave the way we do in this family. Next week, it's Halloween. We will not have church on Halloween. And now you're all thinking, well, now, wait a minute. Why are we caving to some pagan superstition? Candy? I mean, come on. There's candy involved in this, right? Actually, it turns out to be very hard to staff children's programs on October 31st. So we are going to co-opt Halloween. Here's your assignment. Next Wednesday night, instead of being here, Edmund, live stream, in a lesson, we are going to be out in our neighborhoods dressed up as Christians and just living it out and going to be with people. In other words, let's just take our Christianity out, give away a bunch of candy, not tracts. I know you were thinking, oh, he wants us to give away tracts, you know. Uh, are you saved? Uh, what will happen if you die tonight? Yeah, you can give them out if you want to. I suggest candy. You know, it's just a a lot easier. Give candy out, talk to your neighbors, get out in your neighborhood, and just take our Christianity out into the neighborhood. And let our guide not be niceness or a facade or I'm a Christian, so I'm supposed to act like this. I want you to do away with all of that. And I want you to think, I am 100% completely reconciled to God. And I am completely free because I completely belong to him to just go do the kinds of things we do in this family. Does that make sense? Try that. I know it sounds a little unstructured. You try that, it'll be so freeing to you. So try that as you're giving out candy. Now here's what we're gonna come back to. Not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after, November uh, 7th. 
The next thing Paul's gonna talk about is politics. And so we're gonna take that very idea of what it looks like to be a Christian and we're gonna talk about our political situation. So this could be my last class here. We're gonna talk about <laughs> what does it look like to be a Christian in our political environment? Bring your friends, bring your, uh, bring your questions, bring somebody of the other party with you. And we're just gonna talk about what does it look like to be a Christian and be involved in politics because that's what Paul wants to apply the gospel to. I'll see you in two weeks. We'll talk politics. Thanks guys.